0: Welcome to episode 175 of the Left Behind Game Club. This week, we continue our two part Final Fantasy 16 series. Let's get right into it. You're listening to the Left Behind Game Club. Welcome to the Left Behind Game Club, our never-ending attempt to make sure that no game is left behind. I'm your host, Jacob McCourt, and today I have three friends with me. The first friend, you know her, you love her. Her name is Katie Lesbrantz. Hello, we're back. We're back with our second friend, Flora Marigold.
1: I accept the truth.
0: (laughs) And our third friend, back for the second time on the show, uh, from Tales from the Backlog, it's Dave Jackson. Dave, hello.
2: Thank you. Feels like I never left. (laughs)
0: secrets uh you didn't but we're back uh for final fantasy 16 part two if you haven't listened to part one please go back to episode 174 that came out two weeks ago where we talked about it we talked about setting up the world some of our complaints about the side quests and more today we're going to chat through uh some of the big story beats some of our favorite characters we've got a lot of questions from the audience and from y'all in the discord thank you and maybe i'll tell a ben star story because that's who i am as a human being Uh, should we start and talk about the characters? Because I feel like there are some characters in part one that we had not spoken about at all. Somehow we missed talking about Jill Warwick completely. Uh, so I'm going to start with a question. It's from Alias X. The question is, who are your favorite and least favorite characters?
3: Is it weird if I say Hugo and Benedicta?
0: No, not at all. Please elaborate.
3: (laughs) I don't know. I was, there were... Some of the few characters when they were on screen, I'm like, oh, they could say or do anything. And mm-hmm. I was like, here for it. Whereas almost everyone else kinda had their lane and more or less stayed in it. And I kinda knew like I kinda knew what Jill was gonna say. I liked Jill. Um I think Jill may be one of my favorite of the main party. Mm. Um but but yeah, I think Hugo and Benedict are <laughs> possibly my favorites.
2: I'm gonna go ahead and say clive is probably my favorite character uh and maybe sid also although i have a a real weird mental block where i i know that sid's voice actor did an incredible job but i don't believe that that's the voice coming out of that man so (laughs) like the the character uh, the the render of sid the character so despite that mental block i thought sid was cool i would like to hang out with sid um Jill is my least favorite character, like almost by a mile. I, I thought that she um she I'm gonna use a sports term here. It's gonna sound derogatory, but I promise it's a sports term. Uh Jill felt like a warm body to fill a role in scenes. Yes. Uh I, where, yeah. whereas uh you would expect a arguably the second most important character, third most, maybe behind Clive and Joshua, to do or say almost anything outside of like a 15 minute quest where she gets her revenge. Um, She she just kind of there and doesn't feel like she has any personality or role in the story other than to serve whatever's going on with Clive, uh, including their, um, their love story. So uh, yeah, Jill, worst character, in my opinion, I thought she was bad.
3: I mm-hmm. Okay, I agree that she's the least fleshed out character of mm-hmm. all of the main party. I think it speaks to more of how much I didn't care about the main party. Thank um, you. I did yes, like Clive, though. <laughs> yeah. but, um, that's, that's why I was like, yeah.
2: uh, my favorite is Clive, I guess. Yeah,
3: yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I feel like Jill is this weird, like, pseudo-Tifa Lockhart stand-in. Like, they're trying to, like put in this, like, attractive woman character, but then they forgot to write her. Um, <laughs> and that's yes. unfortunate, um, because the few scenes where she is written are, are actually, I think, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But my favorite character is uh, Torgle. <laughs> <Hey.
0: laughs> he's a good boy. Yeah, he's a good boy. Yeah. Uh, I would tend to agree on the least favorite character, and again, it, it's all the writing. It is very much like um, uh, the Bechtel test, like Jill would likely not pass Uh, based on, like, everything that happens. I mean, she is essentially purchased or taken as a child and then becomes sort of a sister to to Clive, at least when they're growing up. And then, like, essentially her whole story wraps around, you know, Clive's story. So I would say, like, writing-wise... Definitely my least favorite character. And then I have a lot of favorites. Uh, We've named some of them. Uh, But I think the one thing I definitely wanted to happen was I wanted Dion uh, Dion Lesage and Joshua to kiss for the entire game. Mm. (laughs) And they didn't. And so I was really disappointed with that. Um, Mm. Dion, in my mind, I appreciated that they just like didn't kill the the queer character immediately uh, and really gave him like a very, I don't say valiant end, but like, I think treated him no, with a lot didn't. of respect when they could have just like buried buried their gaze and they didn't. And I appreciated it, at least for most of the game. Uh, but there are so many excellent characters. Even some of the side characters, you may be like, uh, they're just throwaways. But some of the folks in the hideaway, uh, like um, Lady Karen was like a very cranky old lady that always had some great, great jokes. So a lot of fun characters in the game. Uh, so now that we've got that question out of the way. Uh, should we talk about some of the things we liked about the game? Because in the last episode, we basically trashed the game for a lot of the time, and I think we wouldn't be here and wouldn't have finished it if we didn't at least like it a little bit. So I'm going to challenge everyone to tell us one thing they liked about <laughs> Final Fantasy sixteen, starting with our guest Dave. You can go first.
2: Uh, I thought the music was excellent. Loved it. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And especially punctuating those big icon battles. It was incredible. But um, this is this episode full spoilers too?
0: Full spoilers. Okay. We are going to spoil the heck out of Final Fantasy sixteen, so pull the trigger, baby.
2: Okay, so after you destroy the last Mother Crystal, um, mm-hmm. it's it's like the color gets drained out of the world, and they do this, this amazing visual palette change uh, around the world. It really seems like, oh, you really screwed this up. This is bad. And, and the whole tone of the visuals and the music also changes to support that. And so you might have had like this kind of, adventuring backing track in the earlier sections of the game when you're going through some of these open levels. But it is melancholy, sad music as you're going through the levels in the last like last third, maybe, of the game. And I thought that was excellent. I've never seen a game do that before, even though you you do have... Well, I, I guess that's not true. Final Fantasy VI does that. But I have not seen a game recently do something like that. And I thought it was a really nice touch to really sell uh, how bad things are. I feel like
1: music was going to be my answer so the other thing I will make sure to compliment about this game is the character costuming, like the actual Mm. design of what these characters look like and what they're wearing I found to be incredibly striking and there was never a moment of confusion between any of the main cast Uh, no one looked out of place, no one felt out of place um, and I, I think that the only thing that might have been out of place was um, Clive's buttons that kept bursting on his chest. Like, that's the only thing mm. I can point to. The, like, like, they all just are stunning costumes. Um, the other thing I will say is early on in the game, I want to say this is taking place during the demo. There is a battlefield sequence with a bunch of, like, swords being slung around, people yes. in full suits of armor. And the animation that's present, it's a f- full cutscene. There's no interactivity or anything, so they can get away with this. But the individual animations happening on that screen, if you go back and look at that scene closely, is staggering. It's one of the most well and thoroughly animated scenes and sequences I've seen in a AAA game maybe ever. Um, it felt like it could have been filmed like the Lord of the Rings like scene.
3: I echo everything that both of you have said. All those <clears throat> things were on my list of like the big standout great things. Um, I'll also say um, the environment art of every single big giant environment that you go to to me was beautiful and had all these interesting architectural elements that that made them unique and everywhere we went to i was like oh my god it's beautiful as far as just the color and the the lines and the angles that everything formed i it really felt like they let artists just go nuts and, like, make whatever, make it as big as you want and as, as, um, yeah, just go crazy. Like, just whatever you want to make, put into this game, throw it in there and, and make it your own. It was beautiful.
0: Yeah, and even though there were, like, to echo your point, some, like categories of stuff like there was castles and there was a crystal dungeon there were a lot of those i felt like there was even there was a lot of personality between each of them uh even between the different kingdoms castles uh it was super fun to explore those and you know as as much as tedious as it was sometimes to run up a giant spiral staircase i still sort of loved it and to that point the thing i loved about it as a as sort of a not JRPG person, I mean, this year I've played probably more RPGs than I've ever played in my entire life. Uh, I appreciated that they always kept us on the critical path. There are a lot of games having played Chrono Trigger and I literally know it's not the same thing, but I just, as a point of comparison, uh, Chrono Trigger very much is just like, here's the world and go and and sort of just figure it out. And sometimes it requires you to time travel where where, uh, physical locations are different. But with this, it's very much like, There's a critical path. You will know what you're doing almost the entire time because the map's great. But beyond that, even having Torgal as an assist that can essentially, if you click the the left stick, it will essentially point you in the direction of your main quest was super helpful. And especially in the last couple of hours when my TV settings maybe weren't set the best for the very dark environments I was in, uh, it was really helpful for me to have that so that I always knew where I was going and I never really got lost.
3: Should we talk about active time lore yeah
0: because, fantastic
3: oh my god especially War games. In this game in particular i'm like what What a better game, like in the year of 2023, what game, if you looked at the slate of games and said, which game would I want something like active time lore? It's this game, where at any moment they're like, oh, and you betrayed so-and-so. And And, uh, me, of course, who doesn't remember uh, main characters' names, I go, excuse me, who? And I just hit start, or I hit, uh, I don't know, two buttons. The touchpad? The touchpad. And then I don't I hit two buttons, which bring me straight to Active Time Lore. And it pulls up this, like a handful of things that are relevant to what's happening. Either it is where we are and who's talking or who the place that they are referencing or the people that they are referencing. And you can literally just go over there. And not only does it tell you what the character is, their motivations, <coughs> it's updated. In real time, with where you are in the game, it's like, well, and this happened, and they're mad about this. And it's for it to be so well done that it's not just, oh, a character description that they put in at the start of the game, and it's the same one throughout the whole thing. That would have also been helpful. But for it to be updated and for where that character is in the story at the present time, that's really cool. And I want it in more games.
2: It's the right way to do a codex. Um, yes, tons of yeah. RPGs introduce proper nouns to you. And then they say, well, if you want to know what that is, go deep into the menu and read out of the codex. And I I don't want to. And when I go in to read the codex, I've lost the context for the thing that I'm looking up and it's, it's just not ideal. So this actually feels like a direct result of uh, my lightly researched development story of them, the whole team watching Game of Thrones um, to like get inspiration. Uh, I lightly researched, I'm pretty sure that's true. Uh, but one of the things about Game of Thrones for everybody who has read or watched that show is that they throw a bunch of names and places at you at the beginning and you're like, I don't know who the Tyrells are. What, how am I supposed to know that? This feels like a direct result of that where they're like, you know what? People are gonna wanna know these uh, places and names and families and icons and stuff like that. <clears throat> Let's figure out a way to teach people right there in that moment.
0: Yeah, and even like building past the active time lore, there's even resources in the world. Uh, I think the codec was really well done. The uh, Harpo Kratis had essentially like a encyclopedia where you could find out every character, every location. And then as the game went, it would update and say, and add information so that you would have multiple pages for a single character, for example, to go through. And even Vivian, uh, Vivian Ninetales, who is like the strategist, I don't know if y'all went into like her screen, but she essentially had like a battle map that would show the entire world and then the conflicts that happened between all of the different kingdoms. And you could go through the entire timeline and learn about each one of those individual conflicts. Again, I, I spent maybe 10 minutes looking at that stuff, but like, while that it was there, a lot of resources it took to put it in there. And I appreciated having it, even though I didn't spend tons of time in it.
1: So that makes me wonder how often y'all actually looked at the active time lore in the game while playing, because it struck me as an incredibly impressive feature, but I didn't use it. Um, Dave?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. So like, I praise its inclusion, and I used it a lot in the first half of the game when they're introducing all of these kings and queens and knights and places and stuff like that. I used it quite a bit. But then at a certain point, as we've talked about before, all that stuff gets left behind, and it basically becomes a story about Clive and Ultima and Joshua, and none of that stuff really matters. In between those big scenes, uh, I remember those like battle map scenes that uh, Nine Tails, I forget their name, um, shows you. But they're basically just like cutscenes in between main story missions, and I was like, I don't care. This is I know this is not important for the story of this game. I, I'm not paying attention. And similar to the active time lore, like you spend the last ten hours of the game, like almost exclusively talking with Ultima and Dion and Joshua, and Barnabas is there, but I I, I know them. There's there's like four characters, so yeah, I did fall off of using it for sure.
3: I so I didn't touch the was it Hippocrates I didn't no. I didn't touch his stuff I didn't touch the the battle map no. I did use active time lore probably like I think I probably pulled it up about eight to ten times through the game that's it I I mean yeah and then I w- when I was, like, really lost in what they were talking about, if there was, like, one little nugget that I was, like, I don't know who that is, I would just let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it was, like, wait, where am I? And I really needed, like, a reset, that's when I would pull it up. But, like, those eight to ten times, I feel like, is a meaningful number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, probably used it, like, in, like, the last, yeah, quarter of the game. Probably, like, I don't know, two or three. But... Yeah, I know. I used it enough that I appreciated its inclusion.
0: I think for me, I used it at least, very much like Dave, like the first half of the game, I used it more until it became a, a you know, a, a story about very few characters. But I probably use it at least once or twice an hour for the first 25 hours of the game. Because I'm dumb and I can't remember what characters are all about and I cared.
3: See, I'm the opposite. We're at the beginning. I was like, well, I don't know that yet, but I'll I'll wait and see if they explain that to me. So I didn't use it as much at the beginning and then more mid to late, that's when I used it more.
1: I also only used it maybe eight times or so if we're being generous, like it was like a play around with it until I figure out how it worked and then never again sort of thing. But it struck me more as an accessibility feature rather than like a crucial gameplay feature. Um, I, I was really interested to see the implications of how this sort of system could be implemented in other games. And hopefully this is something that caught enough attention and buzz to where other developers will do something like this. I could, for example, imagine like a Dark Souls being really interesting if there was something like, I know that fans of your FromSoft games uh, like piecing that stuff together on their own. But like, I missed the entire story of Bloodborne because I just didn't want to go through and actually like pay attention. So having a button to hit would be really useful in a game like that for someone like me who's maybe not as prone to, to piece things together organically.
2: I think that for RPGs with like, you know, pages and pages of proper nouns, this should be a standard thing. I don't ever want to open up a like a a Mass Effect codex ever again and like dive in (laughs) for a specific thing like pages deep into a menu. I want to they just set a name in a cutscene. I want to pause the cutscene, check what that name is right there, integrated into the game. This, uh, this should be something that other developers take note
3: of, I think. It, it's really, it's the relevance of the information to what's currently happening. Yeah. That is the big breakthrough, right? Because like you said, we, the games have had this information stashed away for you somewhere <coughs> if you need it. But having the most relevant information right there, a click away, that is, yeah, that's the special thing that they accomplished.
0: Um, I'm going to pivot us just a little bit and, uh, you know, we promised to talk about some of the major story beats here. Um, we've talked around and danced around the icon battles. Uh, I would love to dive in and talk about some of these icon battles because some of them are fantastic. And one of them in particular, I think was incredibly disappointing. Oh, yeah. Ooh. agreed. Yep. I'm trying okay. to
3: think of which one. I mean, Dave, okay.
0: do you want to play a game, Dave on three? Do you want to say which one was the most disappointing? Yeah. Sure. Can
1: I join the game? Yes, okay. you can do it. Yes.
0: Okay. One, two, three. Bar-Titan. Yeah, Odin. What? Hey, you said Titan. Okay. Yeah. So Dave and I agree. Flora, you said Titan. What? what? Uh, you said The Titan, Hugo right? fight?
1: Yeah, the Hugo-Pukul
0: like <laughs> fight. Okay. Why don't you go first and say why you're disappointed by that one?
1: The Hugo fight is way too long. It's long. It is. Yeah. It's, it's like maybe three times longer than it should be. It like the emotional buildup is perfect. The some of the cool set piecing things that happen in it are fantastic and over the top. Don't get me wrong, but then y- you just have more phases, and then like, <laughs> like okay, okay, all right, we're we're wrapping this. No, there's more phases, and so that's where the disappointment lies.
2: You know why I like that fight a lot is because I really like God of War on the PS2, and that yes, really reminded hey. me of a God of War uh, fight when you're fighting like you're fighting poseidon or something like that in those old god of war games i was like this is cool i like i agree it's too long but while i was thinking like hey can we wrap this up i was also like this is cool
3: exactly (laughs) i do recall a moment around two-thirds of the way through that fight where i was like oh we're still going huh but i didn't (laughs) mind like ultimately i didn't care and also i feel like a big part of the that fight that really um That pushes you through that is that music change from that orchestral chanting grandiose and it goes to like this electro beat kind of new metal-y thing as you're running up its up its limbs that was cool I'm sorry that is that's pretty sick yeah I was like oh you're hitting me right in the I don't know what's (laughs)
0: And maybe for me, like the, the, my memory of it puts it in like the mid tier of icon fights Mm -hmm. because of the moment that happens after the fight where, spoilers, you literally cut off Hugo's hands. Yeah. Which, having never played a Final Fantasy game, I was like, that seemed kind of a stretch for them. Where like, you know, cutting off appendages and having that character lose those appendages for a lot of the game didn't seem emblematic of a Final Fantasy game. Like it seemed like that was really them like trying to push it and earn the M beyond the weird sex scenes that they they had in the game. Yep. Yeah, uh, Barnabas, uh, very disappointing because it was built up and then it was really easy and didn't really have any stakes. I don't know if that was your feeling, Dave. Uh,
2: a couple things. Um, I I I I know that this is like a a I. L- I like this in theory. This is what I'm trying to say. I like in theory when you're not supposed to win a fight and you get into the fight and they just beat you. And it's not a classic like, oh, we do this fight. I destroy the boss, but then I lose in the cutscene afterwards. Instead, you get into the fight, if I remember right, and Barnabas just destroys you. You can't beat him. Um, I like that. But... I don't know, there's just something a little bit disappointing about that because I thought I was going to get an icon fight. And then when you do get the icon fight against Odin and Barnabas, you don't get to do the Ifrit versus Odin thing that you did for all the other icons, which is what was disappointing for me. I was, because like we we talk about the ones we like, the one before this, you went up into outer space. (laughs) And so... I was really looking forward to like, okay, what's the escalation here going to be fighting against the biggest, baddest dominant that's left. But you don't, you just, you, you fight in Clive form against him. You never get that Ifrit form escalation of spectacle that I've like, we, we mentioned before, this is the, I, I go through these peaks and valleys in this game where I'm like that thing I just did. I love the fight against Titan, but then i have 8 hours of nothing i've 8 hours of room temperature unflavored oatmeal after that and then <laughs> and then i get another cool i go up into space and i fight bahamut and it's the coolest thing i've ever done in a video game <laughs> visually and yeah. then i have this valley again after that more oatmeal and then i'm like okay i can't wait until i fight odin and it's it was just a big letdown yeah
0: and look, there, there are moments within that Odin fight that are, are high points. Yeah. And I think at one point he essentially parts the sea, which I don't know if y'all felt that was very biblical. I was like, oh, oh I see yeah. what you're doing here. We're moving towards killing God. We're going to part the sea. Okay. Yeah. And uh, to your point, like, I, I don't love in games where you have that moment where you can't beat the boss and, like, no matter what you do, you can't beat it and you're not meant to beat it. Um, but it's... Uh, the the second phase was the disappointing one for me where like you've gotten Jill's power you go back and essentially it's almost like he he gives up to you at one point and just says like oh you are mythos i'm going to give you my power and just sort of rolls over in a way that i was incredibly disappointed in because it would, that's like the second to last, that's the penultimate boss. And he's really put up as the, the most powerful of the icons and just rolls over. Like you have a harder fight with, with Garuda, which was easily my favorite. It was fun.
1: I feel like what I would like to see happen and this, I, I might give you two options here. Odin is so incredibly powerful in how he's framed, like the splitting the sea thing in half is like one great visual example of that. This fight would have been a nightmare, but it also could have been really, really cool if Odin had like a one hit kill situation where you just game over and like you have to really go through a gauntlet to get to that final like human phase that exists currently in the fight. But actually what might be more RPG traditional is to have like a hidden icon fight where that's the case where something's just like way 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 tougher. But either way, it felt um anticlimactic, I think is the word I would give this fight uh, after all of the cutscene build up leading up to it.
0: I think the Garuda fight was fantastic. Mm. Uh really because it was early and it was really like the the biggest spectacle you got outside of the that first fight we talked about earlier. Um and it, it, it that one too felt very God of War like in that at one point I believe Garuda's like a large giant essentially with with claws kind of staring down at you on a pillar as you run around her claws and i felt like that was really that was really fun to do i like Um, that fight a lot
2: it's um like the the one on the rooftop is the one that i remember the most that that feels like kind of like your first real boss fight in the this was in the demo too it was in like they had like a separate uh, mode in the demo where they were like, you played the beginning of the game. Now we're going to let you play with like upgraded powers. Like you would later in the game and see what this combat's really all about. Mm -hmm. And they let you fight Garuda and, uh, and Benedicta. And that was, that was cool. I I liked that fight a lot and doing it again for the second time. When I actually got to that point in the story, I was like, Oh, like I, I know this fight, but it's still fun. I like the attacks. I like the, the dodging out of the way. And I wasn't tired of the combat by that point. So Yeah. Good, good times.
0: Uh, we, we hinted at it a little bit when we talked about the uh, the fight with, um, with Odin with Barnabas. But between uh, the two phases of the fight, that's when you take Jill's icon power. Mm. Did you feel like their love story was a believable one?
3: I mean... Or was it oatmeal? To Dave's point. Okay. <laughs> I mean... Believable in what way? I believe that <laughs> these two people who have known each other since childhood in this like horrible world are like we love each other because we because you know we've grown up together and we love each other and like this love trauma like a person to cling on to, and mm-hmm. then they have this bond. I believe that. Do I believe like any moment like you like we've said Jill is underwritten so. Mm-hmm as far as their communication with each other and like the moment to moment um, scenes with them two in it, do I believe it? Not really, but I believe that those two could have been in love. Like, I believe that those two would have this like incredible affection for each other. So I don't know. Yes. And no, I guess.
0: Mm -hmm. I felt like the more interesting part in that space between Jill and Clive was when Jill gives up uh, her powers to essentially, you know, power up, Uh, clive for later the joshua piece of that is actually more interesting because he just gets pissed off that you know he's essentially positioning himself as the savior of humanity and needed to take jill's powers to do that and was really upset about it i think is that the point where maybe he punches like clive for essentially taking you know her icon power away i thought that was the wrinkle that was more interesting but their relationship the voice acting between both was great but the believability in the writing of the story just made the whole relationship feel very milk toast.
3: I don't think that there was enough of a lead up to, or uh, int- anything yep. giving that moment any power. Like all of a sudden she's like, "Oh, oh I naked. give you my power." I'm like, "What do you? What do you mean? Yep. Why are we? Yeah, we're naked on a beach, and she's given him <laughs> her ice power." And I'm like, "This feels like an allegory, but I don't know. Like, we're what? What are we doing? Like, well, what, I didn't." <laughs> It felt like they were trying to accomplish something and failing miserably in all mm-hmm. accounts. Because it felt like, yeah, there was not enough weight to the moment. Um, it felt kind of weird, like, like I said, like it was trying to be an allegory in a weird way that I didn't really like. Um, I don't know, like that the idea that she's like, oh, I'm giving my power to the to the man. It was strange, in a, because it's more useful to him. It, but it makes sense within the story and who the characters are. But it just, I don't know, something about the presentation of it was just very strange to me.
1: I definitely felt like it came out of nowhere. It was awkwardly delivered. And mm-hmm. it, it didn't quite do the fan service thing. Like, like oh, they're naked on the beach. Like, <laughs> but it sort of like felt like that was originally where the idea came from. Um, and the fact that I wasn't emotionally resonating with the relationship that was being shown to me um that was it was just very it was a disconnect scene for me um visually very beautifully presented um but i i don't know i i definitely felt out of place because online when i saw people reacting to the clive and jill relationship people were getting really really excited about it and i thought i had missed something like maybe this is a relic (laughs) of not checking the active time lore but i kind of was still under this like aren't they technically related thing. Is this another game of Thrones ripoff (laughs) elements? Like what's good. I I didn't know what to make of it at first. And I just kind of just sat through the sea.
2: Yeah. I'm with you. It took me by surprise and I've talked with other people and they've mentioned like a, will they won't they type of thing with Clive and Jill throughout the story. And I, I was like, where did you see that? I, I didn't see any chemistry in that way between them leading up to that point. Now There are people who say, and this is true, that given all that they've been through, that if they were to just decide to take comfort in each other in that way, then that makes sense. But I did not see any chemistry between them leading up to that point other than the fact that they've known each other forever. Um, And so it felt like a, a really jarring, like, we're in the party, there's so many scenes where, like, Clive is about to go do something dangerous and uh, they'll be like, all right, so we're ready and Jill just goes hmm and nods her head and that's <laughs> that's all you get from Jill <laughs> and there's there's no like you know outward concern for Clive or anything like that. And then that thing with Joshua afterward, it felt like they had cut a scene before that yeah where like I agree. Because Joshua gets, like, real mad at Clive. And it's like, you took this from her. You're making this about yourself and all this stuff. And it's like, Mm -hmm. dude, like, she, that felt like a very consensual, like, you take this. It will do better for you. You are obviously, like, the chosen one in this scenario. I can help you help everybody by giving you my power. So here it is. And then Joshua's like, how dare you do that to her? I'm like, bro, like, you weren't there. Like, what is wrong with you man?
3: I didn't know that Joshua gave, cared in the slightest about what happened to Jill at any moment of the entire Mm -hmm. story. And then all of a sudden he's mad enough to punch his brother about it. Um, Yeah, that was surprising. I never felt any thought of like, oh, will they or won't they? I was like, oh yeah, no, they're the couple of this entire game, this entire Mm. time. And I wasn't going like, oh, it wasn't it was not Ross and Rachel here. Like uh, this is what it is. Like these are the, these are, this is a couple right here.
2: Not, not Tidus and Yuna to give a final fantasy example. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Weird.
1: The one thing that I think is also puzzling about all of this is that when you get Shiva's powers, it's not like that actually gives some new dimension of gameplay to Clive. It's just another icon that you can choose to mix and match. Um, I, I didn't think that the Shiva powers were, like, boring or uninteresting or unhelpful, but, like, it's not the uh, transformative thing that the story and the cutscene suggests that it actually might be. Like, once that scene's over, great. I get this new elemental attack that doesn't really, like... Yeah. It, it doesn't like, break a new type of enemy, you know, back to that whole elemental damage discussion.
3: It's one of six, Yeah, yeah. like any other.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah, Dave, you go first, because I, I want to take us in a slightly different direction.
2: Okay. Yeah, I, I think that the thing about that transfer from Jill to Clive is that Clive took the other ones by force, basically. Uh, Clive took it from Benedicta and Hugo. Um, Joshua blessed Clive when Joshua was a kid. Clive had the blessing of the Phoenix at the beginning of the game. This is the only time when a character like willfully gives it over to... Uh, until Barnabas, to, to Clive. Uh, so, like there is that if you're really really into the story to a point that i wasn't I, I think that that point is there that like Clive's taking all of these by force from these these villains throughout the story but this one is a like you know what you take this type of thing Do you find yourself playing older games and wishing that there were new discussions about those games? Enter Tales from the Backlog. Hi, I'm Dave Jackson, and on each episode, I'm joined by a guest to break down those games that may be stuck in your ever-expanding backlog. Each episode looks at one game in-depth, focusing on mechanics, story, music, and other aspects with no spoilers until a clearly marked spoiler wall in the middle. If you've played the game, go ahead and climb that spoiler wall and enjoy in-depth story discussions, and if not, jump out when we warn you, and maybe go play that game for yourself. We have over 100 episodes in the feed, everything from Disco Elysium to Tunic to discussion episodes about how to get into horror games, and if games actually need to be fun, or if they have more to offer. I guarantee that there's something in there for everybody. Once again, that's Tales from the Backlog, available wherever your podcasts are found.
0: Um, we've talked here about uh, you know Shiva and some of the icon powers. The thing we haven't shared is what our final loadouts ended up being. Mm. Um, so I'd love to know. Maybe starting. Maybe maybe I'll start so y'all can think about it. But I ended up defaulting by the end. You know, speaking of of um of Shiva and Jill, I ended up using her power for a lot of the end of the game, really because you know she had an area of a <clears throat> effect uh, power that I really enjoyed, and then had sort of a uh, you know, a, an ice wall that she, she could bring up, so I used uh, Sheba. And then I, I kept with my fire powers uh, from the Phoenix for almost the entire game, and then ended up finding, because you can actually, once you've mastered a power, the thing that I didn't know until, like, hour 30 of the game is when you master a power, you can actually slot it into, um, you know, if you choose one icon, you can slot a different icon's ability into that that icon slot. Mm -hmm. So essentially I would have Sid's Electric power but Mm -hmm. then had Like Hugo Kupka's Like big ol' punch Katie, I'm, you look surprised.
3: I'm so annoyed. I'm not surprised. I'm annoyed.
0: Of yeah, course, you can mix and match.
3: Of course you can after you master one of the powers with the ability points that you don't quite get enough of. You get yeah. like 950 uh, whatever, silk steels, but uh, but you don't get enough <laughs> ability points to like, mm-hmm. be able to do as much as you want. Even if you like hyper concentrate on just the things that you want, it's still not enough. So of course... Of course, if you master them, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Course, I actually don't tell you.
1: I didn't put together that it required mastery of an ability for that to be the thing. I just figured out like 45 hours into my playthrough that, oh, I never explored the menu. And then, oh, I can put different <laughs> elements together. Like, I don't think the game actually does a great job of communicating when that happens, no. whenever it opens up the ability. Um to get back to the loadout discussion, I really enjoyed pairing Titan abilities with everything. Like just having a Titan ability on hand was always... Uh, it felt very safe for me. Um, I strongly disliked the lightning icons tendency when you hit circle to zoom in on the reticle. Mm-hmm. That always threw me off as like an accident in combat. And so I would take the lightning abilities and put those on the other icons that I was in using in combat, like a um, Afrit or the Phoenix. Um, that sort of like... I, I think the abilities of some of the secondary and tertiary icons that you get throughout the game are great, and then putting them on the primary ones that you get at the beginning of the game, that was where I felt most comfortable, because, like, the Garuda ones, I didn't really love, but I did like that circle ability of, like, yes. you know, whipping whipping to, towards or, or grabbing an enemy or whatever.
2: Yep. I, I rocked with the Phoenix, the default Phoenix loadout. Um, I rocked with the default Titan loadout, and then I had Garuda... Uh, because of that that grab claw feels i don't want to say essential because like again the combat's not it's not at that level but it's really helpful um to to grab a a stagger or a half staggered enemy and kind of whip them down a little bit Uh, but then i put a couple of um odin's abilities on garuda to replace uh one of them to replace one of them and i kept garuda's dodge Ability because that does a bunch of stagger damage, um, but I, I didn't I didn't find Shiva's or Sids uh, or Ramu's uh, abilities to be very useful at all. And um, I, I mostly it was like I'm gonna do these other things situationally. Like if someone staggered, I'll do that that hook claw thing to pull him down. Or like if that dodge counter with Garuda is ready, then I will wait for the next attack to come and I'll use that. But the rest of it was just waiting for Titan's stuff to get the cooldowns to go down because they just do a bunch of damage. And uh, the I think that every fight in this game is about like 30% too long. Regular enemies, boss fights, they're all pretty long. So I want to do as much damage as I can to yeah. uh, hasten it along a little bit.
3: Um, I rolled with Phoenix, Shiva, and Titan. Um my two favorite ones were the Phoenix, um, uh, Phoenix Rises or something. It's a big area attack when, when you mm-hmm. master it, it. Like It's like three waves of just fire and it does a lot mm-hmm. of damage. And then uh, Shiva was good. And then Titan with the, I think the something of judgment, like bolt of judgment or something. Um, when you upgrade that, it's like two big strikes that do quite a bit of damage. But yeah, I pretty much rolled with that almost the whole game.
2: I also uh, used Bahamut uh, because at a certain point, if I know I'm not fighting a boss, I'm pretty bored by the regular combat. So what I would do is I would put Bahamut on and Bahamut has that mega flare attack where you it charges, but you can't attack during it. So you just kind of like kite enemies around while it charges up to like level six or whatever. And then uh, lightning comes from above and kills all of them. So I did that quite a bit just to feel something during those (laughs) regular (laughs) encounters
0: Uh, one of you mentioned that the game doesn't really explain the combat system really well I think they did a really poor job of explaining stagger damage because you know as a new Final Fantasy fan I was just like I don't even know if that's in other Final (laughs) Fantasy games but stagger damage I didn't really understand it until 30 or 40 hours in to say, like, oh, my attacks will do stagger damage that will, like, if I choose a certain, like, loadout or I use specific moves, I can actually stagger bosses faster and get my free hits in. So maybe another point that, that the combat should have been a little more deeply explained.
3: I'll agree they didn't explain enough that some things do more stagger damage than other things because, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't figure that out till pretty late in the game but I do like the two-part stagger system where halfway will just kind of interrupt them whatever they're doing so you go oh I'm this close to that midpoint stagger so maybe you'll just kind of like get try and get a couple more hits in to interrupt whatever they're doing and then the full stagger where it leaves them just lying on the ground for a good I don't know 10-15 seconds and you just you just hit them the whole time it was fun I kind of liked the stagger meter
0: Switching gears. Before we talk about the end of the game, um, I'd love to ask y'all if there's a specific moment that really comes to mind beyond some of the icon fights that we've had that you want to talk through.
2: The I, my this is bad. My first inclination was to say no, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one did come to mind, and it's the moment when uh, this is the really the only moment in the game where I, I really felt any connection with the story whatsoever. Uh, And it is the point when Clive, you've been following this, this hooded figure that like, we know it's Joshua, right? But Clive Mm -hmm. doesn't. And then they, they reunite briefly, but then they have this big fight. It's the Bahamut fight. Mm -hmm. And then after that, finally, Clive and Joshua can reunite and they can give each other a hug. And uh, the the whole storyline to that point has been leading to this moment. And they reunite. it's a great scene the the emotion from the voice actors is fantastic. And then uh, their mom is there too and she uh kind of uh, a little little Game of Thrones analog here too she had been doing all of this uh, backstabbing and stuff because she thought that this is what she had to do because she thought that her you know her the, her good son was dead mm-hmm. but it turns out he wasn't. So mm-hmm. uh she deals with that by just instead of facing the consequences uh, uh wh- what is it the the click the thumbsticks to accept the truth right instead <laughs> of her accepting the truth by clicking the thumbsticks uh she just kills herself uh mm-hmm. right then and there and i thought that that scene the re- the reuniting of clive and joshua was was really great after like again they know that each other is there, but there's pressing stuff they have to do and they, they can't have that moment. And then they finally do get to have that moment and then their mom gets her comeuppance because all the way till the end, she was a terrible person.
0: Katie, are you going to talk about this moment in depth more?
3: No, I'm going to talk about a different moment.
0: Okay, I want to jump in because this is also another oh, moment that I love. This is probably outside of some of the Icon fights, my, my favorite moment, um, because you know we, we hadn't said that... you know. And essentially to keep her bloodline alive, she made nice with Sylvester Lesage, uh, who was killed. And that's why Bahamut like went crazy because, you know, uh, Annabella is her name, I believe, Annabella Rossfield, which at that point would have been Annabella Lesage. Um, she essentially, like, maneuvered to keep her bloodline alive, created a or not creative, like, had a son who essentially was a combination of, of her bloodline and Lasage's. who may, you know, they were essentially positioning him as, you know, the dominant for the family uh, and taking, you know, Dion out through you know, a bunch of political machinations but this part Ben Starr's performance in this specific scene, where he is yelling at Annabella, like essentially unloading all of his baggage about he's, how she's a terrible mother, and you know how you know she essentially pushed him aside and gave him to the slave trade. Um, in that moment, all I could think was, "Oh, this is how Ben Starr wins a Game Award this year. It's this specific <laughs> scene that that does it." And I'm sick for thinking that, but that's all I could think about. That's uh, a good can scene. I tell? Can I tell the story of meeting Ben Starr now? Can I do it? Sure. Yes. Okay. Okay. I was at PAX West and, um, you know, friend of the show who's been on before, uh, Cam, who was on our uh, Walking Dead um, episodes, was sitting in the lobby of a hotel. I was meeting with someone else. I stood up, we were finishing our meeting and he essentially just called me over and I saw he was eating, you know, Mexican food. And I was just like, Oh, Cam just wants to, to chat and hang out. And so I go walk over and he's standing and there's someone sitting at a chair and Cam just goes, Oh, Hey Jacob, I want to introduce you to Ben. And I was like, okay, just get casual Ben <laughs> starts sitting there. Um, who had clearly come for the, the 16 panel, uh, and was, was tired because you know, I'm assuming they came from London. They were very tired, and so they were like, "Hey, great to meet you. Like, let's chat for a bit, and then I'm gonna go and like take a nap." Um, the friend I was meeting with came, and again, Cam knows this person as well, so called her over, um, and she same reaction. I think when I met when I saw Ben, I was like, "Oh, I'm 27 hours into your game. You're great." Which like I don't normally do the fan service thing, but I did in that moment. It's a little embarrassed, but I, I kept a, a lid on it. But the moment I actually want to talk about. Is that you know the friend sat in a chair in the hotel and the chair broke like she is she is a small person but it was just a chair that literally just the leg just <laughs> it was attached with a screw like came out and the chair broke. Um, ben Starr like helped her up and then uh, very casually like got down on one knee and with no tools put this leg back together in a way that I don't even know how Ben Starr did it. With like one swift movement, completely attach this screw again and let her sit. And then like soon after that, just like went for a nap. And I'm like, who is this man? Why is he incredible? Why is he the most shiver? Why is he Clive Rossfield saving people with fricking chairs in hotels in PAX West? Um, I, I fell in love that day. I, with Clive I, Rossfield. With Clive Rossfield. I,
3: I okay. I just have to say, and this this isn't taking anything away from Ben. Starr Don't take in that my moment. story. Don't I'm do sure it. I'm sure it was wonderful. Don't do um, it. I just have to say, Jacob was Don't so captivated that he literally went, "Oh my god!" He threaded a screw in with his hand. <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. Superhero. <laughs> that you, it was like you just, had to be it there. So, it was so perfect and charismatic <sighs> that he was like, oh, he can do anything. He can thread a screw." Literally,
0: <laughs> you, you weren't there.
3: He did it in, right in. He essentially
0: moved his arm in a way and it just Uh. the screw locked back into place and I was like, how did you do that? Do you have ether? Do you have magic? Is that how this happened? (sighs) I finally told the story in a place and now I can just keep it in my memories forever. Thank you all. Hi, Ben, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, did you Um, want to take us somewhere else?
3: So, yes, that was the other moment. Uh, Mainly, um, yes, Clive... Saying everything that he wanted to say and unloading it all, and the voice acting throughout this game, I think, is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, the other moment that I was super interested in was when Dion confronts his family. Yep, because mm-hmm. there's so it's there's his father who's leading um, the one kingdom and of Sandbrek. Sandbrek, thank you. Who is taking it more in a direction of the people of my country don't matter, and whatever. If it burns down, we'll build it up again. And if if people die, then guess what? More will be born, and who cares? And Dion is very upset by this, thinking like this isn't who who I knew you to be, and this isn't the ruler that I knew you to be. And then uh, for some reason, this small child is uh, quote unquote king um, Olivier, and it's all very strange. I didn't know where it was going. And I every time we return to the story, I thought, "hmm, this is kind of interesting, but I don't really know what this is. The moment when Dion throws a javelin at Olivier, and then his father I believe, if unless I'm misremembering his father like leaps in the way mm-hmm. to catch yep. the javelin instead, and then um, the small child ends up being Ultima, no.
0: Mm -hmm. Ultima controls the child. Yeah,
3: Ultima is controlling the child. And the child steps up, who this whole time has been completely uninterested in what's going on. And basically being like, can I have a toy? While they're like, this is our great ruler. And it's this little kid. And it's all very weird. Um, And then this little child stands up and is like filled with malice. And looking around and knows exactly what he's doing. And I don't know. it It culminated in a way that I thought was interesting enough that up to then i was like where is this going and then it ended up being um just a really cool scene
2: yeah fans of game of thrones will uh know that that that's the robin aaron yeah uh, yes. character so w- when that came up i was like oh okay so this is just they they watched game <laughs> of thrones and we're like we're gonna make one of those
3: <laughs> and it was fun again <laughs> i liked it
2: uh
0: Ultima influenced um, uh, Olivier Lesage in that case. Um, Ultima's influence is sort of all over this game. Um, I'd love to start taking us towards the conclusion uh, and talk about the final uh, boss battle and the the way the story ends. Um, Did we like the boss battle? Were we happy at the end? Did we feel like everything sort of wrapped up? I'm actually going to use um, a question from the audience that was uh, from a Thunderheart. They ask, were there any plot points you felt weren't resolved in a satisfactory way? Um, so let's talk about all those things. Someone jump in and talk first. I'm still coming down from the Ben Star
3: story. <laughs> <gasps> I don't... I don't know that I can point to anything that wasn't resolved in a satisfactory way because I wasn't that emotionally invested. Like there were I feel like the highs of this game are extremely high and then the in-betweens are for me extremely low. And to that effect, I'm not waiting for the build up to these moments. I'm kind of they happen and I'm like, "Whoa, this is really impressive, really cool, well acted, beautiful." well scored, all that. But I'm not moment to moment going, oh my God, what's going to happen? I'm more just going, oh, what's the next cool thing that's going to happen? So I don't think I can really point to any um, storyline because I don't think that any of the storylines were that great, I guess. Like as far as continually throughout the game, I, I, I don't think there was that thread wasn't quite there.
2: Yeah, for me, there's the unresolved things for me are the things that they set up in the first half of the game, and then kind of shoved to the side when Ultima really came front and center. So like I said before, one of the things I really liked is how you are breaking the mother crystals and just continually making lives, making people's lives worse. Uh, You're setting out to help the bearers from their their plight of uh, slavery. But after you break the first mother crystal, you see some bearers that were freed and they're not very thankful for what you've done for them. And then you never really revisit that plot line ever again. And um, the plot line about, you know, you break all the mother crystals, magic has left the world. People were relying on this to like do basic things like light fires and stuff like that. I wanted to see after you beat Ultima and, you know, conquer free will for the people of Valisthea, um, I wanted to see the direct result of what you did. I want to see the messy aftermath and I want to see the rebuilding process. But instead, you beat Ultima, Clive dies, and then it it fast-forward an unknown number of years when life is wonderful. But I don't know. I wanted to see how they get to that point but you don't. You just see the, there is a world without magic. Magic is a fairy tale, which is a fantasy trope that I love, by the way. Um, but you don't really see how they got to that point. It, it seems too neat. And it seems like they didn't really know how to get to that point. So they were just like, no, we're just going to skip ahead dozens of years and, or hundreds. Who knows? And yeah. I felt like with most characters, the
1: resolution was satisfying enough. For what this game was, but unfortunately, the lack of resolution that still bugs me is the higher level one. Um, the The overarching narrative just feels like it lost its way, as Dave was just saying. And I think that the things that made this game so compelling in the initial hours were the things that weren't delivered on thematically. Yes, uh, and I mean that in the broadest of senses. Like, like I can't easily point to like, oh, this character, what the heck happened with them. There's some motivations I don't believe in. There's some conclusions that I find a little fussy. But uh, throughout, like, like I don't see, like, there's a glaring thread that's just dangling, being blown through the wind. It's just unfortunate that the overall tapestry looks so unfinished by the end of the story. And it becomes such a trope, the kill god thing, which mm-hmm. I support. But, like,
3: when it <laughs> comes
1: to, <laughs> I mean, like, it's not Gurren Lagann. They're not throwing galaxies at each other, but it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty high level. Um, but I I was ready for the game to be over by that point.
0: Can can I try and summarize what um, Ultima is or how how the whole thing happened? I'm going to try and speed run this just to see because I didn't do any reading. Like, about the plot and, like, say, what does the ending actually mean? But I think what happened was Ultima was a god and said, we want to be more powerful. We want to ascend to a higher level. So to do that, we're going to essentially create humanity and distribute our power throughout the the land (laughs) and create these mother crystals. But then humanity got their own free will and they needed to wait until an all-powerful being mythos was created who could be able to collect all of the the power of humanity then to deliver it to Ultima so they could ascend further is that the thing is
3: that the yeah. plot i think oh, so that wow. ultima could like take clive's like vessel so that that ultima yeah. could take uh clive's body essentially mm-hmm. and then have vessel. all that yeah. power mm-hmm. okay that's a story i guess <laughs> bravo jacob uh,
0: that's pretty good i'm yeah. shocked that i understood all of it because I, 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 there were parts in it that i was shocked by but it was truly that like not that the mother crystals were like ultima in in essence but that ultima had essentially split his his body into multiple parts including parts. i feel, part I feel like in you Joshua. pushed it too far <laughs> yeah. i feel like you tra-
3: i feel like you had it and then you're like i'm gonna go one further and i feel yep. like you lost it but also i don't know if that's right were or there right. not
0: multiple multiple ultimas there, or that so, ultima had split
2: yeah there's that but there's also the fact that ultima is not a singular god ultima is one of many and when they refer to ultima they refer to ultima as Plum. them mm-hmm. be maybe because of a a you know, genderless pronoun thing, but also because there are many Ultimas just like Ultima and whether it's, you know, literally dozens of living things like Ultima or if it's like a hive mind or something like that. I'm with Katie though. I didn't care enough to ask those questions until right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was shocked
0: that they like that. Joshua died. Not shocking that Clive essentially died at the end of the game was shocking to me. Because that didn't feel very Final Fantasy to me. That felt like they let their hero die and then just... At the end, after the
3: hero has done all the heroics and there's no more story to tell, then he dies. Like, I don't know. Once we got there, I was like, oh, he dies now. Yeah? Like, like where else do we go, I guess?
0: And he uses the last of his power to set up a signal to Jill and Torgel to say like, yo, I died.
2: I I suppose um, that's that's where that that bearer's curse finally comes back after being one of the more interesting things that they introduce like ten hours into the game. Yes, and then for forty hours it's gone, and then at the at the very end, Clive's arm turns to stone, and I was like, oh, they didn't forget. It's it's still it it obviously it doesn't matter to anyone else, but it's back.
3: They didn't forget. I did. And yeah. also, that reminded me, like, oh, yeah, remember how interesting this, the start of this game yeah. was? <laughs> like, it, yeah. it literally lit that fire. I was like, oh, yeah, that was cool earlier. Why didn't we talk about that for the last 20 hours? Like, I yeah, it was, it was a cool thing that reminded me of how slightly disappointed I was.
1: So, question. We've punched this game until it's lost all of its stuffing, and... I wonder if you cut out the side quests like pretty much entirely. You trim maybe 10, 15% of the story out of the major sections. Do we feel better about this game in that reality? I no? like... <laughs> no, I, I, okay.
3: <laughs> I generally think, I think it is if you put everything that, what this game is, and no, no exceptions, <clears throat> no cutting, no nothing... I think it's a okay to good game with like the highest of highs but the lowest of lows and it's I I would have to recommend this game with a lot of caveats basically which is makes it not a full recommendation but then, but like th- like I said, the score is so good. The art is so good. The costumes, the voice acting, the, um, the opening setup of the world. Um, I enjoy the combat as kind of meaningless as it is, but I, I had fun with it. The icon battles are fantastic. Like there are so many things that are so good that, which almost makes it more disappointing that all these yes. other parts are not living up to that. That it's yeah. like, but it you had something here. And then it just kind of lost its way. Uh, something about the scale. Like the scale of the game is too big, I think. And then they they just yeah. didn't know how to put it together properly.
1: Um I also just want to briefly say that we haven't as a collective said anything denigrating about the performance or the technical aspects Ugh. or like oh, bugs yeah. appearing or anything. Like this game f- was functionally flawless to me, yep. yeah. Um, and so and like it felt polished as well. So that's another thing it's got going for it. But to reinforce sort of your final remark, I think that I'm a lot more critical of things that ha- like demonstrate their potential, but then fail yes. to live up to that demonstration like consistently. Like that's my Last of Us two critique largely. To plug Dave's episode once again, but um, I'll let Dave speak to this point.
2: Yeah, it, it's exactly what the two of you were just talking about. Um, and I, I talked about this on the Tales from the Backlog episode about Final Fantasy sixteen when we were doing our wrap-up part. We we, like all of us, were p- pretty critical of 16. And it's really easy to just play a game that sucks and has no ambition and is not trying to offer anything new, and just, you know, you you talk about it and you're like, yeah, this was this was garbage. I I wasted my time playing this. I have nothing interesting to say about it. The reason that we have had a critical conversation, but a a fruitful conversation about it is because I think it's really close to being a game that offers a lot. Um it it had a lot of potential with the story. And it abandoned. That's why when you said, had they cut out the side quests and trimmed the main story down, would you feel different? I don't think I would, because they would still be abandoning the interesting part of the story for something that, like I said, in the last couple of years, I've played five JRPGs that do the exact same thing with the story, but in a more cohesive way than 16 does. But the reason that we we come up with these critiques is because the combat is good, but it's not great the story sets up something really interesting, but then it leaves it behind for something that's not as interesting. And all of these ways that it approaches being a great game makes it really easy to find these critiques and have these conversations exactly like the last of us part two, like Flora said, tales from the backlog, whatever episode Jacob knows the episode number.
0: I think
1: it's
2: 87. 80,
0: 78 and 84, I think.
2: Those are the are two, the two yeah. that we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's those games that approach greatness. The games, and we want to like these games. Like, I'm a longtime fan of Final Fantasy. I wanted nothing more than to go to my Game of the Year season and be like, I loved Final Fantasy 16. It's a return to form for a series that, in my opinion, hasn't had a good single-player game since the year 2000. I wanted to say those things. Uh, I'm not quite there, but that's that that small gap is what inspires these these really good critiques that we've we've laid out. I think,
0: Flora, you asked the question: if if it was trimmed by thirty percent, would you love it more? And I think the answer for me is yes. Yes, but I have the I, th- I have to admit that I have rose-colored glasses on because it is my first experience playing a mainline. Final Fantasy game, and it's probably also like um on one hand the amount of JRPGs that I have played, so I have not experienced the you must kill God now sort of trope that comes out in every single uh, JRPG. So I was less less unsurprised and dissatisfied by it. I love the world. Sure, it was disappointing how some of the threads weren't explored or the, the thing that made this story unique was sort of abandoned for the kill god trope. The combat, although simplistic at times, like the layers that they added in was fun for me. And even though some of the side quests were junk, some of them made me cry. So, you know, when I think about my game of the year list, this is on it. Uh, it's not at the top of it, but it's it's a very good game that is going to compel me to play more Final Fantasy games. Like immediately after this, I went and I looked at the list of the best Final Fantasy games. And like, obviously your perennials, your sixes, sevens, and eights are on there. Uh, 10 is on there too. Uh, and I was thinking like, cool, I'm going to play seven remake now. So I don't know. I'm less conflicted than y'all. I loved it a lot. Uh, it has its issues, but you know, I still loved it.
2: I just want to offer a quick correction. Final Fantasy X came out in 2001, so that was the last good mainline Final (laughs) Fantasy game. Thank you, everybody. (laughs)
0: um we got a lot of questions from the community i'm Mm. just gonna pull one and then say thank you to everyone else who included questions uh we will we will throw some of these out after the fact Um, but the last question that i want to ask is would you like to see And this comes from luke lewis uh, lukewarm lewis would you like to see the series continue with more of an action focus or return to a more traditional battle battle system for future entries I think
1: that Final Fantasy sevens more hybrid approach, the remake, is more interesting than the complete commitment that we see here in sixteen. Um, I think if sixteen had maybe more um, immediately customizable combat options and maybe a little more like weapon variation than what we spoke about, and how it's just kind of a ticking up number and some of the less developed elements of the combat here, I might have a different opinion. But I like the blend that's going on in Seven Remake better than a traditional um, turn based combat as well. Like, I, I feel like we live now in an era of game design where you have many people have experienced Persona 5 Royal with all of the amazing enhancements to what turn based combat can look like. And going back to something even as beloved as like a Chrono Trigger is anachronistic, to pardon the pun. Um, when it comes to Final Fantasy, I don't really want to see it live fully in either camp. Or if it does, that's just less interesting to me. So so I'm going to say 7 Remake for those who have played. Uh, you get a little bit of both.
3: I, I would generally agree with that statement that it's most interesting when you can kind of throw all these ingredients together and see what you get and see what kind of um, combination you can get. I would be okay with continuing what they did with 16 with the combat if you have more things that are meaningful as far as choices you make weapon variation as far as what they actually do. Um, Also the AI companions felt very just cosmetic to be Mm -hmm. honest, every Mm -hmm. now and then they would take out a minion. But other than that, I'm like, they're just kind of there. If you can command Torgal, but you can only have them do two things, like attack or kind (laughs) of heal you sometimes. Um, Other than that, like the AI companions just exist there. Uh, So it's like it's like they're trying to make a action, like a Platinum Games action game, but they're trying to have their cake and eat it too and have Final Fantasy elements, but they're not actually incorporating the Final Fantasy elements. So I don't... As it stands, this one, no, I don't want to see this one again. If we're growing on this, maybe. But yeah, I think for a, I played a little bit of Final Fantasy VII remake, like a few hours worth, and I really did enjoy the combat system there. I think something more towards that is preferable, but, you know, they, they could always build on what they did here and make it improve it. But yeah, that's where I stand.
2: Yeah, I agree with uh, what Flora said. The uh, 7 remake combat is fantastic. I love it. It's, it's one of my favorites. Alongside 10, it's my favorite combat system in the entire series um, that I've played. But uh, as far as this game goes, I agree with what Katie said. I don't want them to just do this again. I want some actual depth to the decisions that you're making. I, I want to see an enemy and recognize a weakness And exploit the weakness with the tools that I have. I want to make meaningful choices about what icons I'm using or whatever the equivalent is in the next game, rather than just this one's cooldowns are ready and the the other ones are not. So therefore I'm going to use that one. I would like that. So to answer Luke's question, I don't care if they do another action game or another turn-based game or a hybrid. I don't care. I just want it to be good. Uh, As far as the combat, I want it to be meaningful and engaging in a way that I didn't think this one is. And I want to just do a quick plug because a lot of people think that uh, Stranger of Paradise, the one with Jack uh, yelling about chaos, Chaos.
3: is like a meme
2: game, but it secretly has an incredibly deep combat system. It's really, really good. And all of the things that we've been wishing that 16's combat did, Stranger of Paradise has all of those things. It's really, really good. Uh, so if you, if you like me, were let down by the combat system in 16 for not being deep or engaging enough, try Stranger of Paradise. It's got what you need. Um, <laughs> I also just want to, a real quick thing. Uh, we haven't addressed this, but this game got a bunch of heat from longtime Final Fantasy fans for abandoning turn-based combat, um, which... First of all, Final Fantasy X was the last turn-based game. It came out in two thousand one. Let's let's uh, accept that the series <laughs> has moved on. Mm-hmm. But I, I I I came out of this like feeling that this is like kind of Final Fantasy, kind of not. But it, it's because of all those missing RPG things and it, the fact that it is like someone said, I forget who, sorry, that they're just trying to have their cake and eat it too um, with. Yeah, just doing a platinum games or Devil May Cry type thing, and then just being like, "Oh, final, we gotta have you level up, I suppose. And we gotta have you craft weapons, I suppose." So, all of that stuff, like the the one foot in and one foot out, doesn't quite work. I want them to commit and make a firm decision. Uh, I think this game sold pretty well, so like well relatively well it sold okay maybe it didn't meet I'm sure square. square enix did i was like gonna that. say maybe it didn't meet square enix's amazing uh expectations for sales uh but this game did well enough there's gonna be final fantasy 17 and i hope that what we when we look back at 16 we'll be like oh it was a stepping stone along the way to a really good Action Final Fantasy game because I'm a longtime fan of the series, but I don't care if they do action games. I want fun combat. As of it August
0: 2023? It sold three million copies only on PS5.
2: So well, yeah. So yeah, they release your game only on one system and and then be yeah. disappointed about its sales. Way to go, business minds. I, Give me an just, MBA.
0: <laughs> one quicker. One. Do you want mine? <laughs>
1: square enix reported that they lost like a third of their company like um like value oh. because of final fantasy 16 that's like obviously not true but they're blaming the fact that they've lost billions of dollars on this game's release they um, they,
2: they almost went bankrupt because of their uh experiment with final fantasy 15 so i i also just want to say real quick like It's been a long time since Final Fantasy fans got a complete single-player game that didn't involve some multimedia experiment. So that's good. It's a step in the right direction.
3: Uh, Basically, the hope is that they will learn the right lessons. But based on what we literally just said, I'm not super hopeful that they're going to. Mm. Like, uh, (laughs) we may not... The Stranger of Paradise like you said, uh, you think has a great action um, gameplay and mechanics. Maybe we're not learning the right lessons from Stranger of Paradise. You know, we're not integrating that into other things. Uh, We'll see. We'll see what they do.
2: I also wanted to see Jack in this game.
0: (laughs) Uh, Our opinions are one. Uh, The press had an 88%. Uh, Metacritic uh, or open critic average on this one. I pulled two reviews I'll read them really quickly. GameSpot gave this 9 out of 10. Uh, Michael Hyam wrote Final Fantasy 16 is a bold shift in both gameplay and narrative yet captures the Final Fantasy magic in a stunning fashion earning a place within the pantheon of incredible entries in the beloved franchise. Uh, you can hear Michael on our Hi-Fi Rush episode from earlier this year and from Game Informer Wes LeBlanc wrote uh, when I look back at my time with Clive, his friends, his enemies, and Valisthea, it's those highs that I vividly remember. Final Fantasy 16 is very different from his predecessors but in many ways very familiar and it's still a final fantasy through and through reminding me why i love the series so much you can hear wes on our donut county episode uh, he gave it an 8.5 out of 10 michael gave it a 9 so uh i'd love to thank the folks that sent in questions we're not going to get to those questions uh bits of time Seto box uh, matt storm uh adam gumbert link hs thank you maybe, for sending in questions maybe Sorry, we'll we answer them in the them. Discord. That's a great question. Katie, where's the Discord at? Oh. It- plug a thing. Do it. I'm
3: not, I'm not prepared to plug. Hot you know quiz. I'm not at okay.
0: plugging, Jacob. Club slash Discord is where you can find that, um, that Discord. We're probably going to talk about this game a lot because we're doing a two-part series and a lot of people have questions. So thank you for sending those in. Uh, we'll continue the conversation. Continue the conversation in that Discord um dave thank you so much for coming back to the show um we appreciate it this is probably the longest record that we've ever done in the history of the left behind game club so thank you for that uh tell us where you can be found on the internet
2: yeah. So again, I'm the host of the Tales from the Backlog podcast, where uh, a, this recording that we've done is the average episode length of a Tales from the Backlog episode. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you like long podcasts, in-depth analysis, I, I think that we've got you covered over there. Again, that that show is Backlog Game Reviews for the most part. I do do new games, uh, but the episodes will come out months after the release, so I'm, I'm never on the cutting edge of new releases. Um, again, every episode of my show is split in two. There is a strict no spoiler section at the beginning where we we basically do as much as we can of the analysis without spoiling. So you can listen to any episode of the show regardless of whether you've played a game or not. You will not be spoiled on key story things. That is my promise. And then after that spoiler wall, uh, all all bets are off. All spoilers. So. For those who do want to stick around for that story breakdown, or in the case of some other games, uh, like real shop talk uh, type stuff, you can stay for that spoiler section. You can find that anywhere that you listen to podcasts, of course, unless you're listening on some secret Left Behind Game Club uh, thing that I don't even know about. Could be. I don't know. Uh, But you can find it anywhere. You can also find me on uh, whatever social media you can... Just search Tales from the Backlog. You'll find me and you'll also find me in the Left Behind Game Club Discord server. It's a good time.
0: Dave, thank you so much for coming.
2: Of course. Thank Uh, you for the invite.
0: Of course, uh, you can find all things Left Behind Game Club uh, a couple places on Twitter at Left Behind Club uh, in our Discord, which you've already said. And uh, if you like this podcast, if you literally made it this far and you haven't turned it off yet and you haven't given us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice, shame on you. Actually, we love you, but it'd be great if you could like juice the algorithm a little bit for us and uh, you know maybe more folks will hear the show. Uh, you can find me at all places at Jacob McCord, J-A-C-O-B-M-C-C-O-U-R-T. Uh, I'm on Twitter I will not call it X. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm in the Discord. Uh, And then I host another show called Crossplay Conversations uh, with Luke Lewis and Joseph Hooper. Uh, We are approaching Game of the Year time. We do our show in January. So if you want to chill for the holidays and then grab a Game of the Year show, we've got a big one coming in January. So look for that. Crossplay Conversations on all major podcasting platforms. Katie, where can you be found?
3: I'm on Twitter. I'm Les Brack, Lesperak, L E S P E R A K. The end. Flora, before
0: you turn into a pumpkin, where can you be found on
3: the internet?
1: <laughs> I am on Twitter at Ludo Narrative FM. I'm on epiloguegaming.com, where I actually posted a more in depth article on Final Fantasy 16 if you want to know a little bit more about my thoughts.
0: Uh, Celestmus, coming up. Hey. Tell us about that briefly. Um, oh
1: my goodness, it's awkward um, We didn't talk about this beforehand But I'm flying back home So I won't be able to do Celestmas I'll have to do New Year's Eve Celestmas again okay. um, So so if you want to leave this part of the episode The idea would be that New Year's Eve I will be playing a straight-through playthrough of Celeste. Uh, traditionally I've done this on New Year's Eve for people who like maybe don't have a great relationship with their family or whatever it's like a nice little social occasion to kind of tide us through what otherwise could be a difficult evening but um, last year for various reasons I was unable to do it on Christmas Eve this year same thing so uh, New Year's Eve I think Celeste is coming either way it's a tradition
0: and where are you on Twitch for that
1: oh goodness Um, it's twitch.tv slash flora marigold and that's M-E-R I-G-O-L-D
0: Awesome. Uh, That's the end of our show. Uh, As always, shout out Mike Rufalo, and that, my friends, one less game left behind.
2: Video games are a unique medium. They can tell stories. Immerse us in strange, fantastic worlds. Blur the very boundaries of our reality. But at the end of the day, video games are fun, whatever fun is to you. I'm Jeff Moonen. And I am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. And on Fun and Games, we talk about the history, trends, and community of video games. It's a celebration of all the games we play and all the fun we find within them. And there's so many more games out there. So we hope you'll share in that conversation with us. Fun and Games podcast with Matt and Jeff. Find us on CertPOV.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And happy gaming. Do you feel like you're the only person in your circle who wants to go deep about video games regularly?
0: We were like that too. Until now. Welcome to Crossplay Conversations, the brand
2: new bi-weekly topical video game podcast from Luke Lewis, Joseph Hooper, and Jacob McCoy. With many years of breaking it down separately on shows like the Left Behind Game Club, Player Player Podcast, and Lukewarm Games, the gang is finally coming together to publish their gaming group chat in audio form every other week.
0: Expect roundtable reviews of the latest games profiles of upcoming indies, and insightful conversations about essential topics in the video game industry. All with a mostly positive, insightful, and fun style.
2: Crossplay Conversations debuts on August 1st with brand new episodes hitting every other Tuesday. Help us out by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice to get the first episodes delivered straight to your
0: feed. And follow us on Twitter at Crossplay Convos for updates about the show. Cheers Cheers, and and happy happy gaming. gaming!